think about how fast your grass is growing. I'm just saying, you can watch it grow these days, can't you? And we need to be people like that, anxious for growth, willing to receive the rain which causes the growth, and that comes from God. And growth is one of the purposes of the church, our individual spiritual growth, and then together how we can help each other do that, and then the impact that we all have in the world because of that. You know, this whole year, our theme is around thriving and deciding to grow, and you have to decide to grow, to continue to grow spiritually, is foundational to thriving, isn't it? Because growth in, our, in the spiritual sense, growth in who we are as human beings ever trying to become more like Jesus is something that we have to remain committed to. It, it, there's never a good time to give up on it because you're not a lost cause. And there's also never a good time to say, I've grown enough, I, I've arrived, or I'm, I'm, I'm as good as I'm going to be, because that's not true either. God always has more for us. And we want to thrive, don't we? Don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. Well, we are going to continue today as well looking at um, a bit of the teaching out of the book that John Ortberg wrote called, If You Want to Walk on the Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. And this is our third of six weeks that we're going to be focusing in on uh, his teachings and then sharing it in context with one another. But this is all about that familiar story of Jesus walking on the water and what happened when Peter ventured out onto the waves when Jesus called him to come. And today's segment we're focusing in on is, is all about finding your calling and getting your feet wet. So let's watch John. I want to start with a theological question. Have any of you ever seen a movie called The Blues Brothers? It involves these two characters, kind of wannabe musician felons who are on a task. And anytime somebody asks them about their task, they always give the same account as to what they're up to. Anybody remember what they say? We're on a mission from God. They say, we're on a mission from God. Part of the joke of the movie is that two characters like that would be on something as big and important as a mission from God. I mention this because uh, Jesus taught one time to ordinary people like you and me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are on a mission from God. And the reality is either you are on a mission from God with your life or you're not, or it's not true. So in this session, we're gonna talk about how do you know what your mission from God is? Man dies and appears before Peter at the pearly gates, and St. Peter asks him, why should I let you in? Did you ever do anything really noteworthy with your life? And the guy thinks for a moment, he says, well, one time there was a girl who was being harassed by this group of bikers, these huge bikers, and on up to the biggest one, and I smacked him upside the face. I ripped his nose ring out of his nose. I kicked his bike over. I said, you leave her alone or you're answering to me. And Peter's quite impressed. He said, when did you do this? When did this happen? And the guy says, about five minutes ago. <laughs> How do you know whether or not something is really a mission that God has for you or whether it's just foolishness? There's uh, a new activity called base jumping. It involves people who climb up a cliff or an antenna or a bridge and then jump off and hope in the few seconds it takes them to fall hundreds of feet that their parachute opens. 
It is highly illegal, unbelievably dangerous. Psychologists have identified actually a gene. If you have the long version of this gene, then you are what one researcher calls a type T or thrill-seeking personality. And I mention this to say that the story of Peter getting out of the boat is not about somebody who just is a type T thrill-seeking person. Peter is what might be called the type W person. He is a water walker. He wants to walk on the water. And there's a real important way that Matthew shows this as Matthew tells the story. After Peter sees Jesus out on the water, he says to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. In other words, this isn't Peter just saying, I want to thrill. This is the heart of a disciple who says, Lord, you tell me what you want me to do, and then I'll do it. Now, there's a couple of things that are needed for somebody to be a water walker, a type W personality. One of them is that when God speaks, you have to be ruthless about saying, okay, God, I'll obey. We all tend to have a, a kind of spiritual comfort zone. And uh, a real important principle from Scripture is what might be called the first step principle. That is, God will enable you to do things that you can't do, but you have to start by stepping out in faith. God tells the Israelites He's going to make a way for them to cross the Jordan River. But the priests who were at the front of the line, they had to step into the river first. And the text says that the Jordan was at flood stage when this took place, and the banks were almost perpendicular. So the leaders carrying the ark, if they went into the river, they went into the river. When they took the first step, God made a way. But they had to take the first step. Now, there's on the sand uh, concentric circles, and this might represent your spiritual comfort zone. The inner circle is what you're comfortable doing right now. Crystal, I'm going to ask, if you would, that you step over here and get into the boat. Okay? And you're representing all of us as you do this. There's an inner circle here, and this kind of represents your comfort zone. This is where you feel safe and secure. This next circle, you feel a little less secure. This one's bigger stretch. This is a bigger stretch. Jesus is way out here beyond the outer circle. He's calling you to come to him. Have you ever been a jumper? Mm-hmm. Well, this is your shot right here. So <laughs> see if you can make it from there to here. Anytime you're ready. Well, both feet together. You can't take a step. Both feet together. Go, girl. Jump. Unbelievable. And you made it standing up. Thank you. You stuck that one like Mary Lou Retton. Unbelievable. Now, here's the way that God generally grows faith. Many times people beat themselves up because they feel like they don't have enough faith. But here's the way that faith develops. Never say to yourself, I ought to have more faith. Instead, just try to get to know God better. Because the more you get to know God, since God's trustworthy, the more faith you have. There's a very famous geyser in America. It's famous for one thing, not particularly its size or its beauty, but it's regularity. Anybody know what its name is? Old Faithful. And this actually is a picture of this geyser, which is famous for one thing, its faithfulness. Now, if somebody were to say to you, I just don't have enough faith in Old Faithful. I have too many doubts about it. You say, hang around Old Faithful. Just watch Old Faithful. And as you see it, being faithful over time, your trust in Old Faithful will automatically grow. And what happens is, when someone starts inside this boat, which is where we all start, 
They just take one step. They trust God in one area where he's asking them to get out of the boat. And your spiritual comfort zone expands. And then you take another step and it gets a little bigger and it gets a little bigger. And eventually you find yourself trusting for God a whole lot more than you do right now. But it's only as you get to know him. And the only way to get to know God is by getting out of the boat. Now that leads to this very important question. How do I know whether any particular course of action is really God calling me or is just foolishness or thrill-seeking? And I want to talk about a few ways to get a handle on this because this is a very important issue for people. The first thing I need to do if I really want to know how it is that God calls me is I need to understand both what gifts God has given me, we talked about that in the last session, and what are my limitations? I find a lot of times for people, it's much easier to think about their gifts than how they're limited. John the Baptist followers came to him one day and they were all upset because they said, uh, Jesus, the one that you baptized, is now teaching and preaching and everybody's following him. And they didn't like that because they were following John and they wanted to feel important. So they wanted John to be the number one attraction. And here's what John said. He said, I'm not the groom I'm the friend of the groom. Uh, in those days, the friend of the groom was a technical term. The groom's best friend would guard the bride at the tent until the groom came and the friend of the groom heard his voice. And then the friend would step aside and the bridegroom would go into his bride. And John says, I'm not the groom. I don't have that gift. That's not my role. I'm the groom's friend. And now the groom has come and he says, now my joy is complete. My joy is not the joy of the groom, it's the joy of the friend of the groom. And I will not lose my joy. You will not cause me to sacrifice my joy by envying somebody else's joy. I know what God has asked me to do and what God has not asked me to do. Another thing that's real important in discerning how has God called me is to get feedback from a community of people who know me and love me. In the Quaker tradition, this is called a clearness committee. The idea is, when I'm not clear on what God's asking me to do, I get a few friends together. And most of what these friends do is ask me questions. To have a little clearness committee of your own can be a huge help in figuring out when and where is Jesus calling me to get out of the boat. Another key in discerning where is God really calling me is simply to ask this question, do I have a genuine passion for this? And Amy, you'll be passionate about something that Roger wouldn't particularly interest you. It's a wonderful quote from a writer by the name of Frederick Beekner. Beekner says, your calling is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Last piece to discerning, to getting wisdom in this business of where's Jesus asking me to get out of the boat is just prayer. Just lots of prayer. It is to do what Peter did. Lord, command me. And I want to tell you a story about one of my favorite water walkers. This is a guy named Bob. Bob had become a Christian fairly recently and he started meeting together with a man named Doug Coe. Doug has a ministry in Washington, D.C., mostly to folks that are involved in government or statecraft. Uh, Bob wasn't. He was involved in insurance, didn't have a lot of money, wasn't well connected, but he was real interested in following Christ. So he started meeting with Doug. And one time Bob came across this statement where Jesus says, ask whatever you will in my name and I'll give it to you. And Bob asked Doug, is that really true? 
And Doug said, it really is. It's not like a blank check. You have to understand it with all the other scriptures. But yes, God loves to answer prayer. So Bob said, well, I've got to start praying for something. Doug said, all right, what would you like to pray for? Bob said, I think I'll pray for Africa. Doug said, well, that's kind of broad. Could you narrow it down a little bit? <laughs> so Bob said, all right, and he chose one particular country. And Doug asked him, you ever been there? No. You know any people from there? No, I just want to pray for it. So Doug made a deal with Bob. Doug said, you pray for this country every day for six months. And if nothing unusual happens, if God doesn't clearly answer your prayers, I will pay you $500. But if God does answer, if something does happen, you pay me $500. And if you don't pray every day, the whole deal's off. It's kind of an unusual approach to prayer, but Doug's kind of an unusual guy. So Bob starts praying for a long time, nothing happens. Then he's at a dinner one night in Washington, D.C. People sitting at a banquet around a table telling each other what they do for a living. A woman mentioned she helps to run the largest orphanage medical facility of its kind in that country. Well, all of a sudden, Bob just roars to life and starts pounding her with questions. She's been sitting there until then. And to catch her breath, she asks him, you've been to my country? No. Well, you know people in my country? No. Well, how come you're so interested? Well, this guy's kind of paying me $500 to pray. <laughs> and she said, would you like to come visit and see what I do? And Bob said, yeah. So Bob flies over, and he's appalled by the suffering and the poverty going on. He comes back to the States, and he starts to write these huge multinational pharmaceutical companies, because he's prompted to as he prays. And he says, every year you throw away millions of dollars worth of medical supplies. Here's a place where kids are dying. You ought to send your unsold stuff to them. And some of them do. And this facility ends up getting more than a million dollars worth of supplies. Wow. I think one of the most exciting things that you can do, I hope you'll do it, is take the Bob Challenge. Start praying for something and pray every day for the next six months. And if something doesn't happen, if God clearly doesn't answer your prayers, Steve will pay you $500. <laughs> oh, he may not. He may not. But I think God will hear. I think God will answer. And I'll tell you why. Because you are on a mission from God. Yeah. yeah. We are on a mission from God. We are. I love that challenge. Who's up for that? Think of something that you can pray for for six months every day, not knowing where it's leading. It's exciting. Let's think about that. And if you're willing to commit to that challenge, let's, let's write it down. And we can help each other do that. And then in six months, who knows what kind of stories we'll have to tell. And I would love to have you share those six months from now. Well, as he was reflecting on Peter in the story with Jesus, Peter asked two things during that process. And, and to me, it really shows the growth that Peter had gone through since he had been called to, to be a disciple, and that was still relatively short-term in the, in the process there. But the first thing that Peter asked of Jesus was, tell me if it's really you. He thought he saw Jesus on the water, but he said, tell me if it's really you. And discerning that truth, because we have a lot of voices coming at us, don't we? In this world, we have a lot of noise. We have a lot of noise functionally just in the streams of communication that come at us. And we have a lot of noise in our heads, don't we? A lot of messages that come through. 
So that question, tell me if it's really you, is so appropriate to test truth, to follow what's only worthy of truth, and that is Jesus alone. You know, when the, the folks who deal with counterfeit money, um, they, how they train people to recognize counterfeit money, they study real money. They study it for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. They don't try to study everything that could be counterfeited. Because if you know the real thing good enough, you'll recognize counterfeit right away. Boy, how that applies to our lives, doesn't it? If we know truth, then we can recognize the lies. Because most of the lies that we get sucked into have a thread of truth in them, don't they? It just gets twisted. And so by studying what is real and what is true, we can recognize the lies. Well, Scott, was at a con Scott and Megan were at a software conference this week, and so was I, a different one, about the same number of people. Um, I got to go to Orlando, though. Um, it was hot and humid. You wouldn't have liked it. But, but while I was there, the, the CEO of this organization, huge organization, uh, was giving his keynote address. And at the end of it, he started talking about software and about business and that is what he does. So I get that and I'll give him a, a pass on the fact that he really just took the whole thing way too far and started talking about how businesses and this using this software, it creates a business that has a soul. I couldn't listen anymore. <laughs> it's so not true. Business is what business is and it's not a bad thing but business does not have a soul. Only humans have a soul, endowed by our creator. And so as I was thinking about that instantly, because I know that truth, I could easily discern that lie. My concern is that there may have been in the 20 some thousand people in the audience, people who believed that, that somehow a business using a software would have a soul. Now, as I sort of got on my soapbox with my teammates who were there with me, they were looking at me like, what's the big deal? He was just using it as a metaphor. You know, are you crazy or whatever else? And so I'm not crazy, but I do know when to turn it off, too. I don't want to overstate what he was trying to say as evil or whatever, but we got a lot of those messages going on in this world about when we want to use something for our own purposes that we can twist truth. And while it may seem insignificant in this context, to me it was a clear difference between truth and a lie. But when you know the truth, then you can discern the lies. So Peter asked Jesus to tell me if it's really you. And in our relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, he will clarify for you when it's true, when it is him speaking. Peter also asked, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come to you. He was going to be obedient, and he was, but it was all based on that personal relationship that he had with Jesus, the trust, the old faithful type of trust that says, I'm not in my comfort zone anymore, but if you tell me to come, I will. He was willing to give up control, wasn't he? And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, those of you who were here when we talked about the story with Peter and letting down his nets after he had told Jesus, you know, that's kind of crazy. We've been out here trying to fish all night, and I don't think this is going to work. 
but because you say so, I will. That's the same attitude that Peter has here when Jesus is, does tell him to come to him. This doesn't make any sense, but because you say so, I will. To know Jesus evermore, forever, is the key to growth, always, always. Well, there's a story in scripture um, out of the book of Luke, and this is after Jesus has sent 72 disciples out into the world to share the good news, to share the fact that the Savior has come into the world. And then we hear this story in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. And then I, I love this part. It sounds so much like us, doesn't it? But he wanted to justify himself. So he wanted to be sure that he got this right and that he could check the box. And he says, and just who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus told a story. I love when Jesus tells stories. And he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw the man, he took pity on him. Now it's this compassion that we see, this showing of mercy, that is always our fertile ground for growth. When we are able to see with Jesus' eyes, when our heart is able to see need, growth is always coming. When our heart sees and responds. So the Samaritan took pity on him, and he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell on the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know that Samaritan, well, let's go back and talk about the priest and the Levite. They walked by without compassion, or maybe they had compassion, but what else might they have had? Fear? Sure, you see somebody half dead, stripped of their clothes, laying in the street, your first reaction may be to run to them, but your first natural reaction may be to run away. So we won't judge them for their reaction, but let's look at the Samaritan. He had a whole bunch of reasons not to do this. First of all, he was a Samaritan. This encounter wasn't good for him, came at great risk, came at great expense. He paid for the care of this man. It came at great inconvenience. He let the man ride on his donkey. 
He took the time. He took him to an inn, and he came back. He actually dressed his wounds. This is above and beyond kind of stuff. This isn't just swooping in for a moment. But it also came with great awareness that meeting needs is our calling. I think we stumble around this life a, a lot, at least I do, looking for one specific calling. Jesus, what is it you want me to do? Show it to me. Give me a flag. Make it clear. Give me the job description, right? Show me what time to, tell me what time to show up and how to do what I'm going to do. When ultimately, meeting needs is our calling. Because when we meet needs, passion, meeting need, we are seeing through Jesus' eyes. And that is our mission, to become more and more like him. Calling is passion, meeting need. So like the Samaritan, who or what will we sacrifice for? He risked his reputation, his safety, his finances repeatedly. What motivates that? Only love. Only a heart connection to the Savior of the world, Jesus, motivates that kind of compassion. So who's your neighbor? Well, also on my trip this week, I had the opportunity to witness what, it, what appears on this next slide. And that is a photograph of the plane I was about to board. I don't know if you can see that very clearly, but um, there's a military casket coming off of the plane. So in the Orlando airport, as we were all concerned about getting home on time and making our connecting flight, and the fact that we didn't have time to eat, and everything that we'd heard at the software conference, and all of these things, this was what was out the window. And interestingly to me, and wonderful, for reinvigorating my faith in human nature, <laughs> the entire concourse stopped. I don't know if you've ever been in, in an airport when it was quiet. It's a weird feeling. In this case, it was a good weird. Because the entire concourse stopped as this scene unfolded. There was a guy in there with a, a dog that was sniffing for drugs or whatever they have dogs do in those airports. And uh, he was coming through the bags as all of us were standing there looking out the window. And his, must have been his supervisor, says, hey, Bob, knock it off. Bring the dog back out. Don't you see what's happening out there? People were crying, <laughs> me included. They were crying hard. This is audible cries. And the interesting thing, too, is that as before the casket came down out of the plane, that there, were, there was this honor guard waiting to receive the casket, but there was a guy in fatigues, who I'm sure was the gentleman who was assigned to bring the soldier home, who climbed up in the cargo hold. Ooh, sorry. And tucked the flag around the casket to make sure it was perfect before it was brought out of the airplane. And as the scene played itself out, the widow stepped forward and was reunited with the soldier. 
some people make a choice to sacrifice or to know that they have the potential of sacrificing all. I've never done that to that degree. And I have great respect for those that do. But the point here is that we can all sacrifice in one form or another because so much has been sacrificed for us. You see, Jesus is the sacrifice. He came, God himself came into this world to understand what we were up against, to understand all the pain of this world, all the, the craziness that creates war in this world, and then to die in our place for our sins, every mess up we've ever made, past, present, and future, so that if we simply accept who he is in our life, that we will have eternal life and joy and celebration in heaven with him forever. And as we become more like him, and, and by the way, that eternal life thing, it starts that moment. It starts that moment that you accept him into your heart. It, it's not about a waiting game here on earth until we get to heaven. And when we make that choice and we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior because of our need, our mission becomes to start living it out. And that means making sacrifices. Some will make the ultimate sacrifice. Others of us can sacrifice a piece of our time, a little bit of our treasure, and yeah, our gifts. And the cool part is, is when the giftedness connects with the sacrifice, it's counted all as joy. It truly does become something that we not only are capable of doing, but that we do willingly. From last week, we've got all of your paper plates over there taped up to the wall, and I'm not sure how many of you are gifted in art, by the way. And I, got, and I understand, I gave you paper plates that the crayons didn't work very well on, so you were handicapped in the process. But as I was looking at those plates, I was drawn to the fact that we have a lot of gifts collected in this room. And when they're combined with a sacrifice of time or a sacrifice of resources in one way or another, they can have a huge impact into this world. I looked at those plates and I saw compassion. I saw those that were interested in supporting others and counseling those who were in stuck places. I saw a giftedness for teaching. I saw a giftedness for serving in functional ways like mowing. I saw a gift of praying. I saw the gift of making music and many, many more. And the interesting thing is when we will exercise our gifts, we get joy. But when we exercise our gifts to meet the need of someone else, that joy is magnified over and over and over. We gotta combine our who and our do. Who we are and how we are gifted uniquely by God with what we choose to do. And in moments, or in the biggest sacrifice we can think of, we have impact. You know, Jesus always prioritized relationship with him and relationship with each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love others as yourself. 
it starts at home. It starts with the people closest to you. It starts with our body as a church, and then it spreads out to become the power, God's power, of this church with a big C, all Christ followers, in impacting the world for him. And it's so exciting. It's exciting to implore your gift, employ your gift in connection with a need and seeing what God will make of it. So whether it's taking that challenge to pray for six months over something that you yet know how God is going to use it, or maybe there's something specific in your life now where you say, I do have this gift that he has invested in me, and I'm going to choose to invest it in another by reaching out and putting it to work to, re to meet other needs. He gets the glory for all of that, and we get to live in the joy of what comes and in the promise of eternal life. And that's exciting. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing how you have chosen to just so uniquely wire and gift, and you've given us so many opportunities to be representative here in this world, and God, it, it does come with great joy. So Father, would you just show us that giftedness that we have inside, and then show us, give us your eyes, give us, open the eyes of our heart, Lord, for how we can reach and touch and impact this world by using our gift. And Father, we will give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. wanted to let everybody know that after church, um, not this week, but we are taking the week off for Mother's Day, but after that, we are meeting to, um, Susan is leading a, a Bible study by Bob Goff called Love Does, and it's a, a great study, each little chapter in the book, which there are some in the back if you would like to join us, everyone is welcome. Each little chapter has um, a story, some, usually hilarious, of something he's done, and it has a great message to it about how um, love does, how the little things you do, little ways you love can change, not just, you know, your family or just anyone out there, just any little thing that you do for anyone. But it's a really great study, and then I'd invite everybody to come and join us.
Mother's Day, everybody. Thanks for being here. I, 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 I got it. I got it. Um, it's great to be here. And however we get through this, you know, it really does. Uh, it, I couldn't go a week without it. And when I do, I, I, I just not. Thank you, mothers, nurturers, mothers, stepmothers, uh, teachers, you know, everybody, all, all the women in life. That it, The things that you give to the world are priceless. Thank you so much. From all the men in the world, we thank you. This next song is called Kind and Generous, and, um, you know, it's talking about God and how kind and generous he is, and he's selfless, and I think that each mother has that bit of God in her, that that selfishness, that, that selflessness, I'm sorry, that was the wrong word, <laughs> that kindness, the generosity, that um, each mother has that piece of God in her and carries it and shows it to all those around her. One, two, three, four. Thank you for it. 